Take out your Bible opening to John's Gospel, chapter 4, once again. We come this morning to part two of a message we began last Lord's Day as we continue working our way through Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, I'll read verses 1 through 26 this morning for the, the context of what we'll continue looking at this morning. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, Samar- a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, how you have placed it in John's gospel for the purpose of giving us these portraits of Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see, to behold the wonder, the beauty of Christ, the sufficiency, to marvel at the one who is the Messiah, the Christ, and so marvel, worship, and from the depths of our heart, love and live unto him. Father John has given us this account that we may believe that Jesus 
is the Christ, is the Messiah. For anyone here this day, however many there are who do not yet believe savingly upon Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would fulfill John's intention. Glorify yourself in the salvation of drawing that soul here this morning out of the world, transforming its inner workings through the new birth and setting us apart unto you through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For those of us who are recipients of this rich mercy and grace, Father, use these portraits to enliven our eyes for Jesus. Help us to see him more than we see the other things around us. Intensify our love and affection for him, our devotion to him, our worship unto him, and our lives for him. Father, glorify Christ in this day. We know that's your every intention. Do that in our midst this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have spent the last several weeks looking at this story of Jesus with the woman at Samaria. And initially, if you think back to two weeks ago, when we really first encountered that, I wanted to deconstruct some common uses that this text has found. Uh, this woman, this story of the woman at Samaria has often been used to um, teach on, here's how to do evangelism Jesus' way. And if you recall, I said, there are certainly some takeaways we can take away from this. But I don't think that's what John intends. We've seen in our day today this text used to, uh, to teach the church the need, how to, how to break down barriers with the world around us. You have Samaritans and Jews, and Jesus is breaking down that barrier and how we... That's not John's purpose either. Again, not that there not, might not be some, with wisdom, takeaways from that, but that's, that's not John's purpose. How do I know that? Because John tells us in John chapter 20 what his purpose is. Going all the way back to John 20, John writes, there were many things that Jesus did, he said, he taught, but I have collected these things out of all those things because I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Everything has been handpicked of all the things that I, as Jesus' best friend on earth, I saw so many things. But these I've chosen and I've organized them specifically to accomplish a purpose because I want it to, you to come to a place where it is just undeniable. Jesus is the Christ. And you believe in Him and live on Him savingly. And so it is important for us to, to deconstruct any understanding of this story of Jesus and Samaritan woman, anything that takes us away from that fundamental purpose. This story is about Jesus. It's not about the Samaritan woman. It's not about cultural boundaries. It's not about evangelism. It is about Jesus. These are portraits of Jesus that are masterfully crafted, strategically placed as John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Anytime we come to a, a biblical passage we're studying, we need to ask, what role does this passage play in the book? What role does this play in God's eternal plans and purposes to glorify Himself and to glorify His Son? And as we look at this passage together, John chapter 4, it's clear that these, uh, this encounter has been scooped up by John among 
dozens, maybe hundreds he could have chosen, this one has scooped up to serve a purpose in his writings. And we briefly talked about this last week, but I want to bring it up again. One of the dynamics of John's writings is something called recapitulation. That's a big word, but you've heard it before. Something unique about John's writing that every time you read something authored by the Apostle John, as you're trying to read, you, just, you always have to keep this in the back of your mind. John is a guy who likes to state something and then come back to it. And then come back to it again. And come back to it again. And why? To make sure we see it and understand it. For instance, the book of Revelation, authored by John. John writes one message, the supremacy and conquering work of Christ Jesus for his church today. And the approach we took in that book was not the linear approach, which is so common today, which everyone gets worked up in a hissy over when you break it up. No, 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 these things have to happen just like this. Well, nowhere does John write like that. John states something and comes around and looks at it again. You remember the illustration we used of a, a football field and you got cameras from different angles looking at the same thing? And we saw that three or four different times in the book of Revelation. He states, and let's look at it once. Let's look at it again. Let's look at it seven times. Let's look at it. Let's move on to something else. We're going to look at it again, again, and again. We're going to look at it again, again, and again. It's called recapitulation. Go and look at John's epistle of 1 John. He's writing about assurance of salvation. If you sit down and outline that book, there are just a handful of bullet points that he's using. These are the things to make your calling and election sure, that you may have assurance. And he goes through that cycle, not once, not twice, but three times. Why? Why does he do that? So that we would believe and know it would be undeniable that the Christ is sufficient, that the Christ is all. And that's what we have going on here. This is how John writes. And what he's doing here in the story of the Samaritan woman, I believe, is he's not writing something new. He's revisiting what he's already said. He's coming around again. He's, it's almost as though he's saying in chapters 1 through 3, I have laid down some massive truths about who Christ is and what he does. Now I got a story I witnessed. And it's going to, it's almost, it's going to, you're going to see for yourself. Not just, I'm telling you Jesus is the light of the world. Not just, I'm telling you Jesus is the true temple. Let me show you how Jesus in his public ministry embodied that, illustrated it, lived it out. And in this story, there are at least six different truths that John has already communicated. This is not new. This story is not about the Samaritan woman. It's about Jesus. And he's picking up on at least six things, and there would be more if we took more time with it. At least six things that he's already revealed about the Christ. But now he's circling back around. Let's examine it as Jesus lived it out. We looked at the first three of these last week. First, the truth that he shared earlier, but we saw it again, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. World not being 
a bunch of people, right? John, we, talk, we spend a lot of time on John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And we take that and we, we immediately assume he loves everybody. That's nowhere does John talk about the world in terms of people. Everywhere in John's gospel, when he talks about a world, he's talking about a world as a system that hates God. God came to a system, to a, a place, a sphere, that the entirety of it was against him. And he, in love and mercy and grace, his attributes, his glory, he came and gave his son. He's the savior of the world. Not everybody. The savior for a world that's in rebellion to him. And among those is this Samaritan woman. It's just reinforcing what he's already told us. Here we're getting to see it. The second thing we looked at, Jesus offers living water. Water has been a theme all throughout John's gospel. In the baptismal accounts, in the changing of water to wine, and what's clear is water symbolizes purification, the work of the Holy Spirit bringing about purification. We saw that in the story of water to wine, those six jugs that were filled with water. What were those six jugs? They were empty at, at the start. Those were the jugs you had to wash in to be clean. And likewise, when Jesus comes to this woman who has a lot of sin in her life, he's saying to her, he's the one who can cleanse her, who can purify her, who can give her everything she's ever been looking for in relationships with men and other areas. She, he can satisfy them all in the purification of her sins and with the purification of sins, giving her God. He's the Savior of the world. He offers living water. The third thing we looked at last week, Jesus shines light in the darkness. John's already told us about that in chapter 1. He's the light of the world. And to this woman who, the Samaritan woman, where we really left off last week, Jesus is revealing wonderful things about her, and she still doesn't get it. Why? Her heart's in darkness. Darker than the darkest night physically on earth, the, the human soul, nothing is darker than that. She doesn't get it. But we've read the text enough times, we're familiar, we know that in the final analysis, she does. Something happens. What happens? Where does that darkness go? Well, the light shines in the darkness. The Holy Spirit comes and does what Jesus said, what Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit has to do. The true light comes into the world and drives out the darkness. These themes have already been introduced by John in chapters 1 through 3. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus offers living water, and Jesus shines light into the darkness. There's a few more this morning for our consideration. Think of these not as just a neat study of John chapter 3. Think of these not as, hmm, man. Think of these as portraits, of Je maybe videos of Jesus is the better way. Audio of Jesus, taking these theological truths that probably all of us would say, I knew all that about Jesus. Yes, but do you live upon them? Do you take them and are, are they what drive and motivate you? And when, when you sin, is this, do you respond to those things because of who Christ is? 
These are live action videos, if you will, of everything John has already told us Jesus is, but now it's on display. The fourth thing this morning, Jesus is the one who speaks with divine authority. Jesus is the one who speaks with divine authority. Now, where have we seen John already explain that? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the spoken Word, the authoritative Word. In this passage here, the Samaritan woman is going to come to realize what John's already told us, that this man who's talking to her is unlike any man who has ever talked to her before. He speaks with divine authority. And this is a very important principle. Because Jesus speaks with divine authority, He is one to be listened to. His words must be taken seriously. We are to look to Him for life's answers. For answers to life's questions. This principle of Jesus speaking with divine authority is really at the heart of this story. If you think about the progression that's taken place here, again, the Samaritan woman initially is hard toward Jesus, right? She's a little bit, there's that Samaritan Jew bias, hatred thing going on. She's open to it, but she's, she's hard toward him. She doesn't understand what he's saying. But Jesus breaks through that hardness, particularly when he shocks her by revealing something about her that she has no idea that he knows. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus comes back, you're right. Not now anyway, but you have had five. And the guy you're living with right now, he's not your husband, but... And immediately, she's shocked by what's taken place. He's confronted her with sin that she had no idea he knew about. And immediately, now, this man becomes unlike anything she's ever known before. This is no ordinary man. No ordinary man could know these things. It's interesting here. What Jesus does with the Samaritan woman is not unlike what he does with Nathaniel. The brother of Philip, in John chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Right? Jesus makes a statement about Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, how, how do you know me? And Jesus responds in verse 48, before Philip called you to come over here and meet me, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. And the fig tree was not just like over there and I saw. It required divine omniscience. Evidently, Jesus had a habit of doing this. When, when people were skeptical about who he is or didn't know, he would astound them. And both in the instance of Nathaniel and the Samaritan woman here, immediately, what did they come to confess? We have the Nathaniel would say in John chapter 1, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Immediately, he was broken down and humbled, and now this is no ordinary man. Anyone who could know what he just told me he knew this must be the Son of God. And likewise, the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, verse 19, what does she say? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. 
she recognizes prophets are those sent by God with a message with divine authority, and she recognizes the authority in this man. Let's talk a little bit about that issue of authority. Because John wants us not just to know Jesus speaks with divine authority. Satan can know that. An unbeliever can acknowledge that. But John writes that we might believe. And what would it mean to believe that Jesus speaks with divine authority? It would mean we listen. We seek him as the authority. We obey. We do what he says. We all have questions about life. We have questions about our own lives. And all the questions that we ask about when deciding what to believe about God, what, what to believe about ourselves, what to believe about the world, the most fundamental question has to do with authority. Who are you going to turn to to find the answer to those questions? The questions themselves are important, but the more pressing question is, who's the authority you're going to turn to? Who are you going to believe? You really can't begin to answer those questions about life without first seeking out who's the authority on this matter, right? When a person sits out to think rightly about themselves, the world, or, or just about God himself, they've got to first establish who is the ultimate source of knowledge on these things. At that point, we all have to come to the realization that in reality, many people, maybe many of us, we live our lives believing certain things, convicted of certain things, get angry about things, we'll fight over things. And we've never once asked the question, where did I get this from? Why do I believe it? Why is it true? Have I even looked in the right place for the answer to this question? Somewhere along the way, we all just begin to assume what I know is true. What I know is right. That I somewhere, even if I can't remember it, somewhere I asked the right person. Somewhere the person I trusted told me how I should think about that and, and it, it made an impression. It made a mark. And I've never once doubted it. I've never once questioned it. Somewhere along the way, we just assume we're always right. And the worldview that flows out of my mind from the authority, whatever it was that gave it to me, I'm right. And if you say something that challenges my worldview about God, about myself, or about the world, you are wrong. So to what or to whom do people look to for their final authority these days? Well, the answer to this would be as myriad as, as, I mean, just crazy. Many look within. They look to themselves. I always get a kick out of uh, reading an author, particularly usually an academic book. And uh, you ever read a book and, and you, there's a little number that means there's a footnote at the bottom of the page, meaning they've, they've got this from somebody else and, and they have to give credit to where that thought comes from and they go down and look and you'll see the author's name and the, the work where they got it from and you can go explore that. You ever seen that before? Have you ever seen one? Because I have. They're writing 
And there's a little number. Oh, there's a footnote. They got this from somebody. And you go down and look, and it's themselves. (laughs) They're acknowledging themselves, or they wrote about it in another book. And again, usually these are brilliant minds, but at one point, point, I'm thinking, that's audacity. The final authority on this matter that I'm going to turn to is me. (laughs) But that's where many people look. They look within. That the answer to life's questions are found within. Look to your heart. Ask yourself. Rely upon your own emotions, your own feelings, your own instincts, your own experiences. Meanwhile, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. You can't trust it. Others look to different things. The law of love. Love rules all. It can't be wrong if you do that which is loving And so they deem love to be the final authority of truth, except you're going to have to define love. And who says you're the arbiter of what is most loving? You're not. I'm not. Some look to the church as the final authority, I think now, of the Roman Catholic Church. The church is the final authority that tells us what to say, think, believe, or do. Some look to science, some look to human reason, some look to their parents to be the final authority. Some look to cultural norms. The point is what? There's an untold number of possibilities that we look to for the answers to life's most important questions. And isn't that probably part of the problem? You notice how we all live in the same world. We're all basically the same humans. Same God who created us, and yet, oh my goodness, we can't agree on a single thing. So much sameness that unites us, and yet, my goodness, questions like, is there a God? If there is a God, how do you know Him? What is He like? Questions like, what is the world? Who are we? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? What tasks should we devote ourselves to while on earth? Every human being asks questions of this sort at various times. And you can't help but notice everyone comes up with different conclusions. Why? At the heart of the issue is authority. Who has authority? Well, as Christians, we've died to all else. As Christians, the Christian perspective is that while all the other things we talked about, parents and the church and science, and I mean, they can be conduits of truth with wisdom. We don't just take it because they, but while there can be truth that comes through those things, none of those things can serve as the final authority for truth, for what to think, for what to believe, for how to live. One, because they're limited. They're not, none of those things, parents, the church, science, your heart, none of them are omniscient. None of them know everything fully. To be the authority, you've got to be all-knowing. So that eliminates everything. So they're limited, but also John, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3 has had a profound effect upon everything. The fall, the fall into sin. Everything has been corrupted, even our hearts, which is why uh, Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
It's a product of the fall. We need a full and final all-knowing authority. And that's what Jesus presents himself as here in the story with the Samaritan woman. We look to God as the final authority. Christ as the final authority. We, as Christian, confess authority is not found, final authority is not found in this world. Not in the smartest person you know. Not in the most impactful person you know. Final authority is found not in the stars, not in the dirt, not in the human mind, not in the human heart, not in a textbook, not in the most genius of people. But the truth concerning the big questions of life are answered from above by God himself. And this God has communicated his truth with us. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There he made himself known. He spoke and appeared to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We read this morning in our opening Bible reading from Exodus chapter 3. Jesus spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And then Moses took that and wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Took the revelation of God to him about a right understanding of who God is, a right understanding of who he is, a right understanding of God's purposes in redemptive history. He then went and wrote what God said. As God communicated to Moses like he did through David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and so on and so forth. In all these things, God is the final authority. He's the one who reveals himself to man in a variety of ways, but most ultimately, how? Hebrews chapter 1, how does God most ultimately reveal himself? In his word, and the word is Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he, the final authority, appointed heir over all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus, standing before the Samaritan woman, is the final authority, full of authority. And this is one of the distinguishing factors of a true believer. It's our view concerning final authority. It's not that in this life we don't have questions, we do. Questions about God, questions about who you are, questions about your circumstances in life, questions about the future. You all have questions, and probably the older you get, you're realizing not that you're having less and less questions, but you're having more and more questions. And the danger is to live like the world to go and find answers from who has written books on these things, who has insight into these things, who has been wise in these things, who has shared experience in these things. Again, I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not saying that God can't use those things as conduits of truth. But if you really want the answer to those things, you go to Christ who speaks with divine authority. He is the Word. This is the Christian view. You go to Christ. Even as I was writing that out last night, I was kind of 
It sounds so easy. It should be easy. But it's not, is it? Because even if we, we've already said that in a world we're all united by the same maker, we're all human, we all live in the same world, we can't think the same thoughts. My goodness, we can't even do it within Christianity. Why is it Christians don't agree on so many things when we would probably, if we're Christians, because this is the defining characteristic of true Christianity, because we would all say Christ speaks with divine authority, that ought to unify pretty much everything. Whatever Christ says goes. Well, why is there so much difference? Why is it not as easy as that? Well, a couple things. Number one, although we confess Christ as revealed in Scripture is our final authority for things, we don't always believe it. It's always easier to say something than it is to believe it and to live upon it. Christians give lip service to Christ and His Word as being the final authority. And they'll say, I believe the Bible. Uh, the Bible is my creed. No creed but the Bible, which that in of itself is a shallow statement. But nonetheless, it's here. I believe this. And then go and live unfaithful to the divine authority of Christ. Some Christians, they, they look to the Bible with good intentions. They want to listen to Christ who speaks with the divine authority, but then they, they're just not good listeners. They don't interpret what Christ says clearly. Their interpretation of what they read is flawed. They read it as though they are the main character instead of Christ. They don't take into consideration the whole of redemptive history. We, we, again, Revelation is probably the most front and center evidence of that. Just reading it without regard for anything that came before it. Or anything, that, uh, the way that John writes. We fail to allow clear portions of Scripture, help us to understand difficult portions, and so on and so forth. What about us? How's your desire for the word? How is your desire for the authority of Christ? Are you diligently positioning yourself as this Samaritan woman was at the feet of Jesus to hear his voice? To hear clearly. Are you seeking the Holy Spirit? Help me to understand. There's no room for me to misunderstand. There's, there's no room for me to misappropriate. I must, you must direct my heart to Christ. Help me to hear him clearly. That's what's happening with the Samaritan, Samaritan woman at this point. Even when she makes the statement that I, I perceive that you're a prophet, she still has questions. There's still questions that are going to have to be answered. She doesn't know it all yet, but what? She's on the right track. She's on the right track. She's looking in the right place for her authority of truth. She's going to press in more deeply on the authority of Jesus. What about you? What about me? What about the church of Jesus Christ? It is not enough to give lip service to the Bible. It's not enough to read every day and move your bookmark. There's a voice that's speaking. The voice of Christ. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me. Are we listening? Are we looking to him? If not, it's not just a, well, I've been doing things wrong. That's sin. That's worthy of repentance this morning.
What is your authority? Is it yourself? Is it anything other than Christ? Repent. You've drifted from the one who's been given the authority to speak with divine authority, Christ himself. Repent. Confess. Return to your king. Fifthly, Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant temple. The woman is going to try to change the subject on Jesus. You know, this is good. I perceive you're a prophet. I I got a question for you. We Samaritans worship over here. You Jews worship over there, the temple. What's going on with all that? Let's talk about this. This theme of temple worship has already been exposed by John. Going back to John chapter 2, the, the story of the cleansing at the temple, right? You remember there? Jesus is in the temple. you got the money changers there. He cleanses the temple. And Jesus says these words to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it back up. Well, the Jews then turn to him and say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. And then John tells us, he wasn't talking about a brick and mortar building. He was talking about the temple of his body, John chapter 2. So when this woman brings up the temple and worship, again, we need to see John is going back to something that's already been explained. And he's giving us just, let's let Jesus play this out. We know that in the Old Testament, the temple was important for worship. You would come to the temple. That was the place where God's glory resided. Again, the temple was just a microcosm of the cosmos of the world where God created a world for himself, where he would reign, where he would rule, where he would be present and be glorified and worshipped. The temple was the place where in microcosm form you would go, but you had to take a lamb with you, right? Slaughter the lamb to be acceptable with God. It'd be washed, cleansed, purified through the, the sacrificial system. But that system was only temporary. It was a placeholder. Worship was never about a temple. It was never about a building. It was never about a place. Worship has always been about a person, irregardless of the building, irregardless of the place. It's always been about a person. Sometimes we let the symbol get in the way of the reality. Because the reality was what? Christ would be the one to come. If you want to meet with God, you don't go to a place. You go to a person. And though your sins keep you from access to that God, and days gone by you had to carry a lamb with you, now the place you go to meet with God is the lamb. Isn't this what John has already said? John the Baptist, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is pointing to himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. And the woman's question is legitimate. How do we worship? You Jews worship like this. We worship like this. What you have here, you just got to step back and see. You have two different views of worship on display. One is a place-oriented worship, and, and the other is a person-oriented or a spirit-and-truth-oriented worship. 
a place-oriented and a spirit-in-truth or person-oriented. In verse 23, we read of John chapter 4. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That phrase, spirit and truth, has been misused a lot. Many claim that the word spirit here means your worship should be passionate. Worship in spirit needs to be passionate, free of constraint. Doesn't matter what you do, as long as man, it's, it's, it's just passionate, it's from the heart. Well, there's no biblical warrant that John ever uses spirit in that way. In fact, read through John's gospel, never does it mean that. It seems wise, let's stick with what John means by spirit everywhere else in his writings. He's dealing here with the kind of thing he was talking to Nicodemus about. When he talked about being born again by the spirit of God. being born again to a new life, being renewed, being transformed, a renewed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. To worship in spirit doesn't mean to be energetic, excited, passionate, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But you can be those things and void of what the true spirit is, which is a worshiper who's been renewed in their heart by the Spirit of God and who has a heart that loves God, that's seeking God. Worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Again, truth emanates from the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit points us to Christ who speaks with divine authority. Truth is the work of the Spirit, making it authentic. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. So to worship in spirit and truth is to worship from a heart that's genuine and truly renewed by the Holy Spirit, born again from above. It's been Nicod- what, what Jesus was communicating to Nicodemus has happened to you. Because you and I know it is possible to worship with a lot of excitement, a lot of zeal, but no real love for God and certainly not founded upon His truth. A lot of times, and no one here, I've not heard this, but it, it, I hate singing those old songs. They're dry, they're dull, they're boring. There's just, we sing them because they're rich in truth. And if that truth doesn't sit well with us, then problem's us, because that's how we worship God. We've been born again to a new heart to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus is telling the woman at the well essentially the same thing He told Nicodemus, you need to be born again, born by the Spirit of God. But what about our worship? Which one describes us? Are we more a place-oriented worshiper or a person-oriented worshiper? Do you find your worship, it just, it just doesn't feel like I can worship God because the place isn't right. The setting isn't right. Because I don't have the things I feel like I need to feel close to God. Well, brother or sister, that's your problem. 
That ain't a place problem. We've been saved by God's grace, given a new heart. And our focus is on a person. Jesus himself said, the day is coming. You will worship neither this place or that place. Why? The Holy Spirit will indwell you and wherever you go, whether you are in the park or sitting on the toilet, you can worship God because God is with you. And you have been born again with a heart that loves him and treasures him. And whether you're in a prison cell like John Bunyan or like the Apostle Paul, you can worship. And there is no excuse for your worship to be common, mundane, boring, dry, empty. If it's that way, it's not someone else's fault. It's yours. It's mine. Are we a place-oriented worshiper? An external-oriented worshiper? Or a person-oriented? That the Spirit and truth has opened my eyes to see a person. And that's my everything. Jesus is that person. Jesus to the Samaritan woman, he's answering her question. He doesn't throw it aside saying, you're trying to sidestep me here. He reveals to her. It's a great question. Here's where you worship. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Lastly, he's the Messiah. Time's not going to allow us to go deep into this. He's the Messiah. Jesus says to the woman, the woman said to him, in response to these words about true worship, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has been identified as the Messiah. All throughout John's gospel, he's been framed as being the one sent by God, the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman who's going to come, the anointed one of God to come and to bring salvation to his people. Jesus here lays claim for you and I to see. I am he. See how rich this text is in just portraits or video or audio of Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. He offers living water. He shines light in the darkness. He speaks with divine authority. He is the Word. He, uh, he, he is the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. And He is the Messiah. Old John just doing the same thing he always does. I've told you all these things before, but I write these things that you may believe. I'm not trying to fill your head with theology. I'm not trying to fill your head and make you know-it-alls. I want you to change how you're living. I want these things to so impress upon your life, upon your soul, that everything about you changes. So let me put this story here. We come to a good point. Let me, let me put this story of the Samaritan woman because so many of these things are coming to play. We're going to come full circle and look at these things again. Here he is. Listen to his own voice. He is the Savior. Are you looking to him? He offers living water. Your great problem in mind is sin. How to be cleansed or purified. The answer is Jesus. He shines light in the darkness. Our great problem, the darkness of our soul. Christ comes and he's the light that drives out the darkness and opens our eyes to see him. Have you seen him? 
He speaks with divine authority. He is the final authority. There is no other alternative authority to go to. It's Christ and Christ alone. Is he the one you're asking your questions to as you come to his word? This book tells us all, it possesses all things pertaining to life and godliness. If you have a question and you're thinking, it just, there's not going to be anything here for that. You've not understood this book. All things pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing you will stumble upon. No question in life for which this is not sufficient because Christ speaks with divine authority and it's all him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Are you a worshiper? A Christ-centered worshiper in the name of Christ, in the person of Christ, by the blood of Christ. We worship Christ. And he is the Messiah, the anointed one. Our great duty, our great joy this morning is to see this all-glorious Christ. There was nothing new this morning. I get that. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, John over and over seems to be one who thinks we can't look at these things enough. We need to come back around over and over and over and revisit them because we, there's a propensity for us to be drawn away, to drift away from this king. These six things are not just facts to put down on paper or in your notebook. They're not things to memorize just for memorization's sake. These are wonders. Wonders of Christ to express with your words in your worship in your prayers. Take the very prayers you pray day in and day out. And this Christ factors into those prayers. Maybe it changes the prayer request itself based upon who Christ is. But we take these wonders and we sing them back to Him. We pray them back to Him. We live our lives upon these truths. The question this morning is not, do you know all these things? As I look around, I hope you do. I would suspect you do. The question is, have they enchanted you? Have they impacted you? Are you believing them to the point of living upon them in all situations?